everyone. Good morning. Good rainy morning. Uh, it's glad. Uh, I'm glad to see you here despite the rainy morning. Ang sarap sana matulog, but you know, uh, nothing better than to be here on a Sunday morning to worship together. Uh, we're starting a new series uh, this morning on the book of First Peter. Now, the book of First Peter, it's, it's an incredible book. For me, I find it an incredible book. Because when you first read through it, what most people would notice is it keeps on talking about the theme of suffering. Uh, there's unjust suffering, suffering for God, uh, the suffering of Jesus Christ. And certainly, we could have gone down that line of study and, you know, brought out the theme of suffering. But we decided there was a more fruitful approach to the book of First Peter, and that is to focus on the theme of a pilgrim. Right there at the very start, Peter calls his Christian readers the exiles. And again, in chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see that Peter says, I urge you Christians as foreigners and exiles, dot, 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 dot. So Christians are exiles, and we're to live as exiles. That is, we're pilgrims in this world. And in one sense, we don't completely belong here anymore. That's why, Peter says, that's why you suffer. That's why you suffer as a Christian. And it's important that we get this right. Because unless we understand this, then you'll never really understand your own life. You'll always be disoriented and unprepared to face the rigors of the journey ahead. So in this series, we'll take a look at what the pilgrim's life is, right? Now, the Christians in Peter's time, they were much like us. They were facing some um, social friction because of, being, because of their being a Christian. That is, uh, they were being ostracized. They were being discriminated. Uh, people were cold to them. People made fun of them. People were unfriendly to them. And people were taking it out on their Christian spouses and taking it out on their Christian slaves. And so society as a whole was making it real difficult for them to be Christians. And many times, when we encounter that kind of pressure, would it, it be so much easier for us to just quietly back away from the faith? Or, you know, just at least tone it down so we can blend in with everyone else? Haven't you felt that way? I certainly have felt that way many, many times. Have you? So, what does Apostle Peter have to say to Christians under pressure like that? It's very interesting because here's Peter now. He begins the book. And how he begins is he sets the tone. He sets the perspective for every Christian. For every exile facing trials. And what he says is the journey that we are taking is difficult. Make no mistake about it. But it can nevertheless be a joyful pilgrimage. So what Peter does is he brings out and he points out the great joy set before us as pilgrims. And he says, as far as you can hold on to that, then you can access this deeper level of courage and strength to keep moving forward. Very interesting. Let me read to you the passage at the beginning of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you search intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the times that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Now, very interesting, very jam-packed passage. Let's take a closer look at what Peter is saying here. And let's look at it through these two headings here. Let's look at the identity of a pilgrim and let's look at the tensions of being a pilgrim or put it another way let's clarify first who are we who are we as pilgrims who are we as exiles and then secondly what does that mean what does that mean then if we are such exiles all right so first let's look at the identity of a pilgrim and right there at the very start peter says to God's elect, exiles scattered. Now the word scattered there, it's the word diaspora. And it's the word usually used for the Greeks who are no longer living in their homeland. Now Peter uses that word and applies it to the Christians and says, we're all exiles. And that should be no big surprise for anyone who is familiar with the scriptures at that time. Why? Because the Bible is full of stories that tell you that you are an exile. God's people began in exile. Remember? God comes to Abraham and says, go leave your country. And so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob spent the rest of their lives wandering as pilgrims. And then later on, Israel became exiled in Egypt. And then later on, Israel became exiled in Babylon. And so on and so on. There's a theme of exile go. But where does it all begin? Why is there an exile? Well, if you go right at the very start of the book of Genesis, it tells us what happened at the beginning. And that is, we sinned. And we lost paradise. 
We're cast out. And we've, we're, we've become exiles ever since. And, and this world is no longer our home. It's a world filled with death and decay and disease. And we're always losing loved ones. We're always trying to grasp some measure of love and life like water in our palms, always slipping away, right? And everywhere you look, there's evil and darkness everywhere. How can this be our home? It doesn't fit us at all. If this world has always been our home, if this world is all there is and it's always been like that, why then do you and I still feel so deeply miserable, deeply unhappy? Why, why do you and I sense that vague you know, sense of dread in you in your sober times? In this world, we don't feel calm or whole or centered at all. We're exiles. And the Bible says the reason is because you and I were designed to be in a perfect, loving relationship with God. That's home. That's our home. It's in His presence where there's no darkness, no sin, nor death. In Him, there's only life and light and love everlasting. That's what we need. That's what fits us. That's our home. It's to be in the arms of God. And as long as we're not, it's always exile. We're always outside. We're never home. But this is why the gospel is such good news. See right there, see what Peter is saying here. He's saying the gospel. He's saying the gospel. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In his mercy, he has given us new birth. Well, what's, what's, what's that new birth? Well, let's step back. What's the old birth? Well, the old birth is the first birth, the first physical birth, when your mother gave birth to you. But that is, you were born into a life that is steeped in sin, a life separated from God. Life in exile. But then here is the new birth. Here is why the gospel comes. Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross so that those who receive what he has done, those who receive him, a new birth comes. A new spiritual life is born in you. A life reconciled to God. A life whose exile has begun to end. And so you're now walking with God in this new birth. And the closer you walk with God the more you feel calmer, doesn't it? The more you feel whole, the more you feel centered. And that, that, that vague sense of, sense of dread in you just kind of evaporates. You feel at ease. And you say, ah, I have peace. You're on your way home, right? So you have this new spiritual life, this new birth, this new you in you. But what does that mean? What is this new you? What, what's that identity? <laughs> Who are you really? What does it mean to be a pilgrim? It, it means you, you, know, you have this new birth, but you're still in exile. You, you are bound for home. You're on your way home, but you're not yet there. You're still in exile. Now, the Bible tells us that someday Jesus is going to return. And when he comes, he's going to remove death. He's going to remove suffering. He's going to remove evil. He's going to fix this world and make it into a home fit for us again. He's going to make this world a world filled with God's presence and glory and love. Filled so much like the air we breathe. It's everywhere. 
That's home. But, but until then, we're not home. We're still in exile. Ah, uh, let's see. What about in the meantime for us here who have this new birth? We are here now trying to live into the new life that we have. We're trying to live, we're trying to go into this new way of life now, that a life that is congruent to our home, not to this exile, right? We're seeking to be Christians, to live the Christian life. So you belong to the city of God, but you're still in the city of man that still rejects God. And so what that means is your Christian life often happens in an environment where you don't really completely belong anywhere, right? Many, many times, what you believe, how you behave, is often thought of as something very odd. Sometimes even completely at odds against society. Why won't you just cut corners in business and at least stay competitive like everyone else? Huh? Why don't you join us when we, when we invite you to have some fun with the ladies? Huh? Why won't you just say that white lie and smooth things over? Why don't you just sleep in on a rainy Sunday morning like this? and catch up on some sleep so you can put in more hours on work and get ahead in life or just spend a little more time at the mall and have some fun. Why? See, there's always that low-level friction happening around the world against us, right? Now, there will be some better days. There will be some worse days, but there's always that friction. There's always that friction because you are walking towards home, but you're still in exile. Well, what should we do then with that friction? What does it mean to be a pilgrim? Should you, as a pilgrim, fight it? <laughs> or should you run away from it? Or should, I con should you conform to it? Or should you change it? Or is there a deeper meaning behind the call to being a pilgrim of God? Now, if you look at Peter, what Peter you, you, Peter, uses a very specific Greek word for the word exiles there. And as far as I can tell, the best translation for that word is the word resident alien. Now, what's a resident alien? Well, uh, think of an OFW. Or better yet, think of an ambassador in a foreign country. A resident alien, on the one hand, is a resident. He's not just a tourist. A tourist comes on a different country, uh, visits for a short while, uh, dips his toes a little on the society, but he's never really there. He's just visiting, right? But a resident stays. A resident lives here. You have an address. You have a work. You have neighbors. You have workmates. You can speak the language. You're part of the society. You're a resident. You're not a tourist. But on the other hand, you're an alien. <laughs> You're not a citizen of this place. That is, your citizenship remains in your hometown. Your heart remains with your hometown. Now you can speak the language. Your neighbors might even like you in here. You're part of the society. But as a resident alien, the people there, the locals, are giving you strange looks. They think you're kind of weird because you say things differently. You see things differently. You don't share all of their customs and values. You're an alien. You're a resident alien. 
And that's the word that Peter uses for Christians. We are resident aliens. We're not just tourists. We're not just going to you know, dip our toes in society every now and then, but essentially we're living in our own Christian bubbles. No, no, no. We're resident aliens. We're engaged. We're here to stay. We're part of society. We're here to love our neighbors. But on the other hand, you're not a citizen here. You're a citizen of heaven, committed to the values and practices and allegiances of that kingdom. And so you don't completely assimilate. You remain different. You remain distinct. Right? You, we, we reject the idea of conformity, but we accept the weight of responsibility to be part of this society. It's both. It's both. You know what that means? That means being a Christian isn't abandoning my work and my culture and my relationships before I met Christ. No. Rather, it's a new way of living within it. See, God has given us a new spiritual birth in our old physical lives. We remain where we are. Or to put it another way, Jesus says, it's like a yeast put into the dough of our lives until the yeast works its, all, its way all the way through the whole dough. And so you know what that means? That means I'm still a Filipino Chinese. That's my heritage. That's the roots of my culture. I don't suddenly change and abandon that because I'm a Christian. And that means your work, you may be an artist, you may be an engineer, you may be a businessman, that still remains when you're still a Christian. But now, your deepest and truest identity is no longer that. It's who you are in Christ. It's this new you. It's this new birth. It's your real home in God. And so, you're not just a you're not a Phil Chai engineer who happens to be a Christian. Rather, you're a Christian. That's the core of you, who you are, who just happens to be a Phil Chai engineer. And see, what that means is that makes you fundamentally different from those of your workmates, from those of your culture, from those of your neighbors. You look the same on the outside, but you're different on the inside. There's a new motivation there. There's a new vision there. There's a new allegiance there that's commanding you to live a certain way of life, a new way of life, a way of life that's aligned to your real home. And so people around you look at you and, and think, you know, ah, this guy looks like one of us, but he's not really one of us, is he? <laughs> You're a resident alien. That's what being a pilgrim means. That's an exile of God. That is, as they always say, you're in the world, but you're no longer of the world. You're a man in between. You're a woman in between. You're in the middle. And therefore, there's always this tension. There's always this tension of being in the middle, right? You're still in exile, but you're on your way home. And so you belong to heaven, but you're still on earth. There's that tension there. You're like a rubber band, as it were, where on the one end you're being pulled down to your earthly realities of your exile here. But on the other hand, you're being pulled up by God heavenward to your heavenly calling, to your new identity, to your real home. And you could say that the Christian life is essentially a product of that tension. It's the living out of that tension. 
And the power of the Christian life happens when you hold on to that tension, even as you're being stretched and stretched and stretched, and you hold on, that's when the power of God comes in to, to bring to you this fresh, new, deeper level of courage and joy. So what is that tension? What are those tensions? Well, let me give you three here that Peter points out. So three more points. So, uh, so if you thought you were having an early lunch today, uh, sorry to disappoint you. But three more points here. Three illustrations, as it were, of what it means to be an exile in tension. Well, Peter brings out three here. And the three are, there's a joyful hope, though we wait. There's a joyful faith, though we suffer and a joyful love that we do not see. Now there's a joyful faith, a hope that we wait, is down there in verse three to five. Peter says, you were born into a living hope. Now let's step back for a moment and think about the exile for a minute. You know what being an exile means? It means that even though you know the gospel, and you know that you're completely Forgiven, completely accepted and loved, and it's this powerful life-transforming uh, power in you, right? But ultimately, it means you haven't arrived yet. You've just begun. And that means your Christian life will many, many times not feel completely satisfying. Not for long. That means there's going to be periods of dryness, periods of emptiness, periods where you will struggle, periods where you will fall into despair. It's not all happy, happy, joy, joy all the way. It's not all blessed, blessed all the way. It's not all wealth, prosperity, and health all the way. No. You're still in exile, just like everyone else. But here's the other end of the tension, is that we have this living hope, Peter says. What does that mean? Well, again, think about the time, about your first birth. When your mother gave birth to you, you were born into a world where everything fades. But in this new birth, God gave birth to you and you were born into a world where there's hope for the future. Why? Because you were born into an inheritance. What does it say there? An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You are born into a world where the treasures there are, are, are where moths and vermin can never destroy and where thieves can never break in and steal, where, where darkness and evil can never touch. You, you know, sometimes you hear about certain people who are born into wealthy families with connections. You know, you know those guys. And, 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 and when you think about it, their futures are rock solid, secure, very bright. They can mess up a bit, but they have the resources and the connections to make sure that they make it in life. And many times it feels enviable. <laughs> but Christians, we have a brighter future. Because our inheritance that we receive is not just land or connections or even just a new earth. What we receive is all that God gives us. And the summary word for that is salvation. Peter says we're waiting for the coming of the salvation. Now think about that for a minute. What does salvation mean? 
Salvation means rescue, restoration, liberation. Now, think about that for a minute because if you are someone struggling financially, struggling to provide, salvation means someday God's going to give you more than all you can ask or think. You're never going to be in debt. You're never going to worry about the next month. You're never going to lack anything. You're always going to have something extra. If you're someone who's suffering an illness, salvation means someday God's going to remove that pain and give you a new body, a body that knows no decay or disease or death. You'll, you, you'll be running without tiring. You'll be leaping. You can keep on posting jump photos like Uncle Noel. If, if you're in deep sorrow, you know what salvation means. Salvation means God someday is going to wipe away your tears and turn your mourning into dancing. You're going to sing merry songs. You're going to make jokes. You're going to laugh from the belly. Salvation means you're no longer outside. You're home. And see, Peter says that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's as good as yours, completely yours. And so, you know, down there in verse 10 to 12, you remember what it says there? It, says, it talks about the Old Testament prophets inquiring about this salvation, and even the angels long to look into these things. Look, if both prophets and angels are straining their necks just to get a glimpse of what this salvation is, then surely the hope we have is the most incredible hope of all. It's the most incredible hope of all, this salvation that we have in Christ. Ah, but there's a tension there, right? There's a tension there because right now we are down here on earth in exile and we groan and we wait. And so we're being pulled there. We're being pulled there. And I want you to know that holding on to that living hope is not going to be easy because it's a tension. You're being pulled down. And I want you to know that tension remains a tension the rest of our life. It's never going to get easy. It's always there. And on normal days, it's going to feel so much easier to just let this go and just recoil back down there. Just fit in. Just, just do this. Just compromise. Just this one time. Just relax. Why can't you just do this? Just do this. Just make your home in this place. And that will definitely be easier. The straining stops. The tension is released. But all, that also means living apart from your hope. Living apart from that great joy of your salvation. And so we hold on. We hold on even as we're being stretched. Even though it feels like we're about to snap, we hold on trusting in God to carry us through. And we march on as exiles. Now another tension there is in 6 or 7. It says we have this joyful faith though we suffer. Now in these verses, Peter, the assumption here is suffering is an integral part of the Christian life. It's not just for missionaries out there in some exotic country. It's for everyone. It's for you and me. Why? Well, because God allows suffering to come in and refine us. Now, the metaphor that Peter uses here is gold. Gold being a precious metal. 
It still needs to go through the refining fire of the crucible, of the furnace, intense heat, so that the impurities embedded in it will rise to the surface, and then the goldsmith can then, you know, skillfully skim it off, leaving behind this pure, refined gold. Beautiful, precious. And Peter says the same thing is being done by God to our faith through the furnace of suffering. Now that suffering, you know, it may mean natural causes or some tragedy or it may mean you're being persecuted for your faith. People make fun of you, they laugh behind your backs or you lose money because of your convictions or you get left behind by your peers because you're trying to follow God's ways. Whatever that suffering may be, Peter says you're going to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, all kinds. But the point being made here is God raises the temperature just enough and nothing more to raise the impurities so that he can skim it off. Skim off. Maybe there's some pride there. Maybe there's some selfishness. Maybe there's some greed. But God is going to skim it off, leaving behind a pure, refined faith. He intends to make us into pure gold so that we become someone who brings... What? Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, what was the tension? The tension, of course, is we don't want to suffer, right? We don't want to suffer. Here is the world now telling you that the goal of life is to be happy, right? That's what they say. And the way to be happy is you make sure your life here is happy, And so you need to get a successful career, a respectable name, a huge house, a beautiful spouse, smart kids. It's all these different things. And therefore, you cannot have suffering because suffering takes it away. Right? It's suffering or happiness. It's one or the other. And therefore, you have to avoid suffering no matter what. But then here's God calling you, leading you to embrace suffering. Now, of course, I'm not saying you should go foolishly into some unnecessary suffering, but God also says, take up your cross and follow me. And what Peter is saying is, God will often lead you into the road of suffering because it's the same road to your ultimate happiness. Because God's not concerned about laying up treasures for you here in exile, no. He's looking to your home. He's looking to your real home to lay up treasures there and bring you your joy, your deepest joy. And therefore, if God can use my suffering here, this exile, this temporary exile, to bring about real glory and precious treasures for me in my real home, that can give me the kind of courage I will need, the kind of strength that I will need to face the sufferings. I don't need to fall into despair. I don't need to run away. I can embrace the suffering. Lord, you want me to be patient with this person and endure him and love him even though he talks for hours on end? Lord, you want me to lower my lifestyle so I can do this? Lord, you want me to face my illness, not focus on me and myself and my comfort, but to focus on you and your kingdom? Here I am, Lord. Use my suffering to bring glory, to bring me my joy. 
And see, that's the tension, right? That's the tension. And make no mistake about it. As far as you hold on to God's hands, he's going to keep leading you to the furnace. Because God's not concerned with your pleasures here. He's concerned with your glories there. And so the great temptation is when God starts leading me to some place I do not want to go, to some trial or grief or suffering, it's to let go of his hands. I can go with you there, God. And as soon as you do that, you know, you let go of that, you recoil back down, life becomes easy and simpler, and you can just focus on making your life here as comfortable as possible, as happy as possible. But the moment you do that, you lose the source of your power, you lose the source of your hope. And when suffering does come as it will, then you have nothing. Suffering will only drive you to despair. But when you hold on to God's hand leading you heavenward, even through the furnace, then suffering can only drive you deeper into God's love. Suffering is going to refine your faith into something beautiful, something without, without, without impurities spoiling its beauty. And ultimately, God's going to bring about your joy, a joy that you will never get anywhere else, not in here, not in this exile. And so we hold on. We hold on and we march on as pilgrims. And now last, the last tension or the last illustration, if you like to think of it that way, is a joyful love though we do not see. There in verse 8 to 9. Now, at the end of the day, you could say this is really the heart of it all. This is really the heart of what it means to be a pilgrim. This is what it means to be in tension. Because yes, being a pilgrim, being a Christian, it's about holding on to my living hope. It's about holding on to my inheritance, holding on through the sufferings. It's all that, right? But at the end of the day, it's about holding on to Jesus Christ. It's Him. Nothing less than Him. Nothing less than Him. It's about holding on to him because that's what brings me the great inexpressible joy, inexpressible and glorious joy. It's as I hold on to him and as he holds on to me. And see, this is why this is the real great tension of being an exile. Because you don't see Jesus. (laughs) And the other end of that is the exile where everything you see and taste and touch and experience and attain in this life. Everything and anything is trying to grab your heart and say, I'm your real home. I'm your real home. You can see me, believe in me, love me. But here is the gospel pulling us heavenward saying that if anything is more important to you than Jesus Christ, if you're trying to get a sense of your security and significance in anything more than Jesus Christ. In other words, if you believe in anything more than Jesus, if you love anything more than Jesus, if you're making anything your home apart from Jesus, then you'll never get home. You'll always be wandering and wandering and lost outside. Because you'll never get what you're looking for in the things that you see. 
It's only in the person of Christ whom we do not see for now. Home is in his arms. Apart from him, we're forever lost. It's in the arms that was pierced in exile for our exile. Only in him are we home. Finally home. And someday, we shall see him as he is. And so we hold on to him as he holds on to us. And as we march on holding on to him, he will be the one to give you the faith, hope, and love that produces the joy that you need until we finally get home. Let's pray. Lord, at this moment, we would like to spend a couple of moments to sit under your word, to let it soak in to the deepest parts of our hearts, to let our beings marinate in that truth. Right now, in our seats, change our minds so that we see you as our home and live as exiles in this life. So now I invite everyone to spend a couple of moments here. This is now between you and God. Now is your chance to respond to the word of God this morning. Respond in a prayer. Respond in your reflections. In the silence, go face to face with God.